I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on Markets and Society. Around me, scores of people have arrived, being held back by the police, to watch this first incision into the Berlin Wall since it was put up on the night of 12th of August. With the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of communism, a new era began. Writer Francis Fukuyama proclaimed that history had reached its inevitable destination in the universal reign of capitalism and liberal democracy. Mrs. Thatcher declared that there is no alternative. Here we go now, any minute, any second now, the Berlin Wall will be broken into. A huge cheers going up. The mood was triumphant. Shock therapy would soon fix the former communist states. Structural adjustment would fix the poor countries. The world was Wall Street's oyster for a while. Huge street demonstrations started early in Seattle and they had one purpose in mind, to derail the WTO. Then came the citizen militias who besieged the World Trade Organization in Seattle in the dying days of 1999. The year before, the so-called Asian economic crisis had devastated livelihoods in East Asia, Russia and Latin America and shown that panic could propagate just as quickly as prosperity in the electronic circuits of the global economy. A year later, Argentina went bankrupt. Enron collapsed. The dream that free markets would cure all ills faded. Communism would not revive. There was now no competing utopia. But the question of the proper relationship between markets and society was very much alive. Tonight we take up the question of markets and society as we begin a series of five broadcasts by David Cayley on this theme. His subject is Karl Polanyi, the itinerant Hungarian scholar who first highlighted the utter novelty of the modern market economy. The market society was different from all previous and other societies because the economy became disembedded from society. All previous societies obviously have had to organize economic life and livelihoods and so forth. But he said the market society is economic in a different sense because the economy drives the society. In that sense, the economy is lifted up and operates according to laws of its own and society becomes subordinate to the laws of economics. Karl Polanyi described the modern disembedding of the market from society in his masterpiece, The Great Transformation, published in 1944. By then, Polanyi had lived through war, revolution, depression, then more war, and he'd come to the conclusion that this whole history of woe had its ultimate source in the liberal utopia of the free market. His aim was to re-embed the economy in society. Karl Polanyi lived what he called a world life, which took him, 
twice as an exile, from his native Hungary to Vienna, London, New York, and finally Pickering, Ontario, his last home, where he died in 1964. Our series follows this 20th century odyssey, beginning tonight with the years before the First World War, the war whose horrors convinced Polanyi that his generation had an urgent calling to understand what had happened. A generation is born into history when it becomes aware of its calling. Should it not recognize the task uniquely set out for it, should it not take that task upon itself, it will meet the fate of the wicked and slothful servant who buried his talent in the earth. Such generations never came to life, for they failed to recognize the task that would have been their life. Markets and Society, The Life and Thought of Karl Polanyi, Part 1, by David Cayley. In 1950, when he was 64 years old, Karl Polanyi looked back on his life in a letter to one of the comrades of his youth, Oscar Yassi. You and I, he wrote to his old friend, reached manhood before the great change. Few such men are left now, but they embody the measure of the West. Those who came after us, he goes on, either exaggerated or discounted the values of the 19th century. It's common, I know, for the old to feel that they belong to a vanishing species. But even so, I think Polanyi is pointing in this letter to something quite real. Karl Polanyi's thought reached for the universal, for what is true for all. He believed in progress, possessing what one commentator on this letter calls an unquenchable passion to improve the world. And he had a profound sense of his own responsibility for the world. These defining commitments did have their roots in the 19th century, in the world in which Karl Polanyi grew up. He was born in Vienna in 1886. His father, Michael Polacek, came from a prosperous family of Hungarian Jews. Later, his children would change their names to the Hungarianized Polanyi. Historian Judith Zapor is the author of a soon-to-be-published biography of Karl's older sister, Laura. Some of these Polacek's were quite assimilated. They would speak Hungarian and live the lifestyle of the Hungarian gentry, apparently which doesn't mean they were Hungarian gentry because they were Jewish, which means they were not full citizens up until then, the 1860s. But we have pictures of the ancestors that show perfectly assimilated Western dressed in their style resembling the Hungarian gentry. Karl's mother, Cecile Vol, came from the city of Vilna, then part of the Russian Empire today the capital of Lithuania. Her Jewish family, too, was highly assimilated, and her father, a scholar, actively promoted the integration of the Jews in Russian society by translating texts from Hebrew to Russian. Sometime around 1880, he sent his daughter to Vienna. She was sent to Vienna 
to apprentice at a jewelry shop at 17. And she went with a young friend, same age, and within the year, they were both married. She met this dashing Hungarian Jewish engineer by the name of Mikhail or Michael Polacek, and her friend, Anna, met and married uh, Samuel Klotschko. Michael Polacek and Cecile Vol would soon return to his native Hungary. Samuel Klatchko and Cecile's friend Anna made their home in Vienna. The families remained close, and Samuel Klatchko exerted a major influence on young Karl Polanyi and his siblings during their frequent visits to Vienna. Klatchko was a colorful character. In his teens, he had run away from his rabbinical home in Vilna and become a Narodnik, a member of the populist movement that tried to stir up revolution amongst the Russian peasantry during the later 19th century. He also founded a utopian communist community in the United States. Kari Polanyi Levitt is Karl Polanyi's daughter and emeritus professor of economics at McGill University. She often listened to her father's stories about Samuel Klatchko. He had um, a small um, bookshop on the Karlsplatz, right in the center of Vienna, a left-wing bookshop, where all the radicals and revolutionaries came to get their newspapers and so on, and including uh, Lenin and Trotsky and many, many luminaries. But also the home of the Klatschkos was a, a sort of a rest and recuperation center for Russian revolutionaries. But my father described to me more than once that they, the men would come and that they had no shoes. They had newspaper wrapped around their feet. And the house of the Klatchkos must have been quite large because they were then accommodated there for a month until they had recovered and they had good food to eat and they had recovered and then they returned to Russia. So my father, as he was growing up, remembers the scenes of these Russians coming. It made a great impression on him. And he was all his life a great admirer of Russian revolutionaries and actually all things Russian. And that my father acquired as a child from the Klatschkos. Vienna, where the Klatschkos lived, and Budapest were then the twin capitals of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and there was frequent and easy interchange between the two cities. Karl Polanyi's father established his family in Budapest, where he found ample scope for his talents as a railway contractor and engineer. Hungary in the 1890s was the place for an ambitious railway engineer or entrepreneur to be, because this was the time of the great industrial boom of the Hungarian economy, and railway building, as always in especially late industrial revolutions, played a, a crucial role in it. So, so railway building was financed 
to a large degree by the government and it was just a you know the heart of this emerging in industrial economy Michael Polacek prospered and he and his wife and six children were soon established at a fashionable address on Budapest's bustling Andrasi Street. But fashionable society and ostentatious display held no interest for Michael Polacek, says his granddaughter. His passion was education of the children. And I think family lived well, but the income was spent on giving all the children an unbelievably excellent education at home. And there was Greek and Latin. Uh, there was French at the table, with a French uh, mistress at the table. English was taught. And, of course, Hungarian and German were the languages of the school and the street in the country. There was fencing. And I, I imagine for the uh, two sisters, uh, there was some music and so forth. And um, my father, as I'm sure you know, as far as social sciences, economics and history and anthropology and sociology, uh, for which he is known as a scholar, it's entirely self-taught. And the basis of that ability to explore all these great areas of knowledge really was that excellent education which the children received. And the responsible was the father. This strenuous educational regime was occasionally broken for the bigger children like Carl by outings with their father. An inspection on horseback of an unfinished rail line, perhaps, or even a night journey by sleeping car to some distant European capital. Then, in 1899, Michael Polacek's fortunes abruptly changed. A summer of constant rain stalled all railway construction and his business was forced into bankruptcy. We know that they had to sell. There was a summer house on the hills of Budapest that they had to sell. They, had, they moved from this very exclusive building to a smaller apartment. I went to see the apartment that they moved to. It was still a very good address. So they, it's not as if they you know, it was all squalor. There was a little bit of interruption. And um, apparently the governesses and tutors were let go. So the household was reduced somewhat. But it means that it was reduced to a relatively middle class <laughs> level from that previous very upper class standard. Michael and Cecile Polachek at whatever standard they lived, were something of an anomaly in the Hungarian society of the time. Judith Zapor, as I mentioned, will soon publish a biography of Karl Polanyi's older sister, Laura, and she's concluded that the family definitely followed its own path. We have a pretty good idea that they really never belong to this emerging Jewish social milieu, that was being established at the same time, that would be 
composed of sort of upwardly mobile, upper middle class, sort of a nouveau-rich kind of people. They never associated with them, but they never took the other possible avenue, which was to assimilate to the Hungarian, born Hungarian, non-Jewish gentry or middle classes, which we also see a lot of examples of. There were two things you could do to make yourself part of this society, the Hungarian society. You could change your ma- uh, name, family name, to a more Hungarian-sounding family name. They never do that. The father never does that, Michael Polacek. He remains a Polacek to the end of his days. What's being mentioned in all the, uh, the memoirs that he changed his children's family name is a legend. The children changed their own name one by one. For instance, Laura Polanyi changed, legally changed her last name in 1912. Her father was dead by, you know, for seven years by then. So you could do two things to become more accepted. You could change your name, they never did that. You could convert, they never did that. And my explanation is that because Michael Polacek's family had been settled in Hungary and they spoke Hungarian for generations, they dressed as Westerners for generations, they weren't particularly religious for generations, he really did not feel the need to show his Hungarianness with these outwardly signs of, because he was Hungarian in language and culture in lifestyle. He was a, a Western-oriented Hungarian, which was the best kind there was at the time. Lacking a social niche, the Polacek family, in effect, made their own. Cecil, for example, hosted a regular salon. Budapest, before this time, had known academic and literary salons, but Cecile's gatherings were something new. They brought together the emerging radical intelligentsia. Judith Zapor has studied the photographs of these assemblies with an historian's curious eye. You look at the pictures. You see Cecil always in the same position. She had this trademark position of reclining on a sofa or on, a, on an armchair. She's <laughs> it's, 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 it's quite interesting. And then you see mostly younger people. So you see all her children, and there are two young men who, who will have very significant roles in Hungarian cultural and political history who were present from the beginning. Their names are Oskar Yassi and Erwin Szabó. Now, Erwin Szabó is easy because he was a Polanyi cousin, like it seems almost everyone else at the time. He's a university student, but he will, in very short order, become the sort of the eminence grease of the Hungarian Social Democratic Party, the best-trained Marxist theorist at the time in Hungary, the editor of Marx's works in Hungarian, and a very, very important influence on not just the Polanyi siblings, but an entire generation of revolutionaries and social reformers in Hungary. So he's sitting there, 
and his closest friend was Cariasis sitting there, who in 1900 will launch a journal called the 20th Century. And this journal and the Society of Social Sciences will become, so these two institutions, will become the backbone of Hungarian social reform in the coming decade and a half, the period before First World War. Both Yasi and Zabo would have a shaping influence on young Karl Polanyi. And Cecile Mama, as she was known, also received many other members of what Hungarians would later call the Great Generation, among them George Lukács, Karl Mannheim, and Béla Bartók. But for all that, Karl seems not to have much enjoyed his mother's famous salon. My father really, to be truthful, did not really like these activities and what went along with it, you know, which was a certain superficial knowledge about who's important and what's important. Discussion of ideas in a gossipy way. My father did not like that. And you know, many people engage in this kind of thing. (laughs) And uh, so I got the message early that I was not to model myself on the grandmother or to be theatrical or to aspire to the bourgeois life. Cecile, one of her daughters-in-law wrote, was like a book not yet written, a contradiction, half bohemian, half bourgeois, interested in all things avant-garde, but ambitious that her sons have brilliant careers and wealthy wives. The children, on the whole, preferred their father. It's interesting that in the the general biographies of the family or, or memoirs, They always point to Cecile as the intellectual influence because she was so tremendously interested in in everything that was new and emerging. But on a personal level, it really seems that the Polanyi siblings were much closer to the father, who was, for for long periods of time, who was an absent father by, by force of his work abroad. But it really seems that they adored the father and they were somewhat irritated and annoyed by this very nosy and noisy mother that they had. My father adored his father. I will show you a picture of him, but it's a little framed photograph which my father had hanging above his bed in every place where we ever lived, in Vienna, in Pickering, in London. He had this picture of his father. He adored his father. And I think the other children also loved the father, but perhaps none loved him as much as Karl. And on the anniversary of the death of his father, he would write a letter to all the brothers and sisters. And after his sister Laura died in 1960, And there was really nobody left because um, his older brother Adolf had now 
passed away, he wrote these letters to me. Michael Polacek died while still in his prime. Karl Polanyi recreated the circumstances for his daughter in one of his anniversary letters, written near the end of his life in 1962. Mousy was the pet name of his older sister, Laura. Now that Mousy has left me, there's no one to know what happened to me when my dear father died on January 10th, 1906. Sophie and Michael were still children, Adolf in Japan, Mousy just married. My poor, poor children. These sighs were carried on his last breaths, his failing pulse, his lungs whistling, his eyes glancing in despair at his helpless children around. For many years I dreamed that he had returned to life. He had never died. Those we love with a child's love live on deep and far and real into the lifetimes of our own beloved ones in another and still another generation who do not know whence they feel this breath of life. Michael Polacek was buried in the Jewish cemetery in Budapest. His influence on his son Karl was profound. It was expressed above all, Carrie Polanyi Levitt says, in a spirit of unyielding integrity. I will recall an incident in England where our income was really very, very minimal, you know. I mean, in economic terms, one would have to say that we were very poor, but we never felt poor. So there were income tax forms to be filled in. And I remember there was an occasion where the assessor, the income tax, had put a certain figure as my father's earning. It was a very modest figure. I wouldn't like to say what it was, you know. Let's say it was 13 pounds or something. And he said that no, there was an error because he had actually earned more and it should be 15 and not 13 and then he, he, he would have to correct this. And so, you know, my father was incapable of telling a lie. It was a total principle. So this is again part of this almost puritanical upbringing, high standards of excellence and of honesty and of civic obligation, like paying taxes. You're a citizen, you pay taxes. It's important. This sense of civic obligation, inspired by his father, soon found its first great outlet. At the time his father died, Karl Polanyi was a university student in Budapest. Two years later, in 1908, after a physical attack by reactionary students on a progressive professor of law, he founded, with others, a student society called the Galilei, or Galileo, Circle. The name was chosen, first of all, to evoke science, but also to recall its namesake's defiance of the Church. The Galilei Circle took its stand against the semi-feudal order that still ruled Hungary, and was then entrenched in the university, the Church, and the state. The Galilei Circle was really 
a quite successful attempt to organize the more progressive elements of, of the student body. And what you have to understand here is that these were students at Budapest University, which is a quite nationalistic institution, and its faculty was, was overwhelmingly coming from the nationalistic school. And it was a minority by all accounts, but it was a quite successful attempt to bring out the progressive element and give them a forum, give them institutions where they can gather and discuss and then they, they can actually go and organize what they, which they did, their own courses, as in open university courses for the working class. There is this conviction that it's part of being a student to go out and use the knowledge to give something back to the working class. It stood for enlightenment. It stood against the clericalism of the church, the backwardness of Hungarian nationalism, monarchy, etc. And education was central. And the activities it undertook were quite remarkable because we read that in any one year they organized 2,000, 2,000 um, study sessions, literacy classes in the countryside and among the disadvantaged uh, working classes of Budapest. And it was obviously a very important development in Hungarian intellectual life and it, it is so regarded in Hungary to this day. This is Ideas, and tonight you're listening to a program about the early life of economic historian and social theorist Karl Polanyi. It's presented by David Cayley. Karl Polanyi was the first president of the Galilei Circle. Its profit, according to one old comrade, and the source another said, of its moral atmosphere. His eloquence was often noted, and in letters of the time he even reproaches himself for a certain vanity about his skill as an orator. Change was in the air, and its inspirations were diverse. Liberalism, Marxism, psychoanalysis, poetry, all fed the younger generation's hopes, and in this ferment although it's surprising to say so today, poetry was not the least. In 1906, poet André Audi had published a book simply called New Verses, in which the spirit of the age was brought to a fever pitch. He became a hero to the students of the Galilei Circle, and the poet, for his part, called them the young brothers of his heart. Years later, at the time of Audi's death in 1919, Karl Polanyi remembered Audi's impact in his funeral oration. The human spirit defends itself in two ways against the unresolvable disharmonies of existence. Soothing away and rendering forgettable life's disharmonies with songs of beauty, that is the way of the great sleep-inducers. 
But there are also those who are called to heighten consciousness of the unbearable nature of being. They break apart the searing hoops of old forms and invest the mind with less limiting bands and fetters. These are the great consciousness engenderers, humanity's awakeners. Jesus says, I have not come to proclaim peace, but strife, and father shall be set against son, mother against daughter, proclaiming the eternal implacability of all spiritual truths. Andre Adi is among the eternal awakeners, who make the revolution of life itself into the life of the soul. And in this way, they outlast revolution, because they themselves are the revolution itself. The view of revolution that Polanyi expresses here is one that I think he maintained throughout his life. Adi was the revolution itself, because his poetry expressed an expanded life. And it was this enlarged humanity, rather than a mere change in the arrangement of the political furniture, that Polanyi sought under the name of socialism. But at this time, the years leading up to the war, he was torn. He was politically active, first with the Galilei Circle, and then with the Citizens' Radical Party, a left liberal initiative of his friend and mentor Oscar Yazzi. But he was also bound to a career he didn't want. Following their mother's plan, Carl and his brothers had each trained for the professions. Adolf, the oldest, an engineer after his father, Carl, a lawyer, and Michael, the next, a doctor. Carl went to work in his uncle's law office. This uncle had been generous in his support of the family after his brother Michael Polachek's death, and working for him was Carl's way of contributing to the maintenance of his mother, his younger sister, and his two younger brothers. But he was most unhappy in a world he experienced as staid and artificial. He disliked being there. He did not want to be there. But at the same time, he was the son who was providing or assisting in some way for the family because the oldest brother, who was supposed to have stepped into the footsteps of um, the father after the father died, <laughs> he went about as far as you could possibly get away from Budapest all the way to Japan and stayed there for very many years. Yeah. So he split the scene, as they say. And that left um, Carly, my father, as the next in line to provide. Michael was uh, several years younger. My father always had a very protective attitude to his younger brother, Michael. So this responsibility for caring for the family really fell on my father's shoulders. And I believe, or my mother certainly believed, that this really was the reason for his depression and partial breakdown. That is just the burden of this responsibility and that he, this is not what he wanted to do. The breakdown to which Kari Palani Levitt refers here would come during and after the war, and I'll deal with it at greater length in the next program in this series. In a letter written later to a friend, he calls his illness a melancholia, a depression, and says that it had been constantly on the increase since his 20th year, 1906, 
the year of his father's death. This must be respected as his own report, but historian Judith Zapor finds a somewhat different self-portrait in his letters of the time. The letters that I had seen from Karl from before the war to his sister, who was probably the closest relationship with any of, of his siblings, uh, show this very confident, very ambitious young man who was aiming for some kind of political role, either as within Yassi's party, of which he was the first secretary when it was officially launched in uh, 1914, or as a, the leader of the radical youth, as a journalist. He was very conscious of his abilities as an orator. He would report on his success and that they would be in awe. And he always makes sure to make little ironic <laughs> references to his own vanity. But you see this ambiguity. So I don't see the, um, you know, the burdened with everyday task uh, Polanyi, I, I really, I mean, he was quite in his element in this social milieu. Engaged, ambitious, self-regarding, but also profoundly strained, inwardly divided, hating what his acute sense of duty still required him to do. Perhaps the contradiction precisely gives the true picture. In any event, the call, which came in 1915 to serve in the Austro-Hungarian army, was almost a relief. An accomplished horseman, he was commissioned as a lieutenant in the cavalry and posted to Galicia, a region spanning the Ukraine and Poland. His depression and the grim conditions he found there ran together. The Russian winter and the blackish steppe made me feel sick at heart. Daylight seemed bounded in a narrowing disk that grew dimmer and dimmer. At one time, I remember, the cold was so intense that when my horse stumbled and fell, I was too apathetic to get out of the saddle. Fortunately, though I may not have thought so then, the gaunt, stiff creature, a yellow Cossack mare that we had picked up, jerked herself onto her long legs, and I was saved. For had she rolled over... I might have been crushed to death. This vignette is perhaps the only reminiscence Polanyi ever wrote of physical conditions at the front, and it occurs, strangely, in an article on Shakespeare's Hamlet that he wrote many years later. During the war, he had two books with him, the Bible and a single-volume edition of the complete Shakespeare. Hamlet was the play to which he constantly reverted. He identified himself with Hamlet. And he knew the play. Indeed, he knew, I think, most of the works of Shakespeare. And he had with him, in Poland, in the mud and the cold and the horrors of that place, because the Austro-Hungarian army was only fractionally better off than the Russians. I mean, in the sense that there was sickness, there was typhoid, there was utterly miserable conditions and, of course, bitter cold snow. So we had this volume of Shakespeare with him. I have the volume 
It's a leather-bound one with very fine print. And many years later, he wrote this essay, which was published in the Yale Review in the 1950s. And uh, I think it is quite autobiographical. You know, whether to be or not to be the king of Denmark, or to be or not to be the bourgeois success that was expected of him and everything that goes with it. And he didn't really want to be. And his interpretation, I think, of Hamlet was that he didn't really want to be the king of Denmark either. And then there was a mother figure, you know, and there was an uncle and a father in the play and in my father's life also. And it's not that his mother had an affair with the uncle, but the uncle was the chambers where he had to work, you know, and didn't want to. And the father he adored when the father had died. So, you know, the, the, the ghost, it, there are unmistakable to me. I don't like psychology much, but it's, it, to me, this essay speaks very, very clearly. For many years, the memory of those bleak months haunted me. I could not rid myself of the idea that, by some weird chance, I had possessed myself of Hamlet's secret. I knew why he did not kill the king. I knew what it was he feared. He is unable to decide to live. He can exist only as long as he is not forced to resolve to do so. To obey his father's behest would involve all that living involves he would become king and involve himself in a fatal sequence of obligations. Hamlet knows in his bones that he will never comply. His refusal springs from his dread of becoming part of a world he has learned to detest with all his being. Polanyi served on the Russian front and meditated on Hamlet until 1917, when illness and injury forced him out of action. For Hungary, it was a time of political upheavals. In the dying days of the war, with the defeat of the Habsburg monarchy imminent, a republican government was formed, and then replaced six months later by an even more short-lived Bolshevik regime. Its members fled when Hungary was occupied by French and Romanian troops in the summer of 1919. But most of these events, Karl Polanyi followed from a hospital bed. He was hospitalized for two or three years, first in Budapest, and then when he came to Vienna at first, in Vienna also he was in a hospital. And for very, very many years he suffered from the effects of the illness. I think it was typhus. And it's something like malaria. You get occasional very bad fevers. And as I was growing up, my father used to have these fevers. He also had a very bad hernia, which I think also came from injuries in the war, really. Because before that, he was very fit and a very good-looking and very fit man. In the war, he lost his hair. He aged many, many years. When my mother met him, in 1920, and he would have been 33 or 4, she wrote, he was like a man whose life is behind him. The war affected Polanyi on many levels. It undermined his health. 
it brought his depression to a crisis, and it exposed the problem that he would spend the rest of his life pondering. What he called the automatism of a society which had pushed everyone unwillingly into the abyss. He wrote about this problem, probably from his hospital bed, in an essay called The Calling of This Generation. The war's greatest ill was neither want, nor wounds, nor sickness, nor strain, but rather that peculiar, elusive presence that crippled the soul. The true cause of this dread was the soul's torment over existence that had lost its meaning. Man cannot live in a world in which his search for a meaning would be in vain. Individual man, dumbfounded, kept gazing into a tremendous catastrophe. There he stood, in the very midst of it. Its cause he did not know, its aims refused themselves to his probing mind. Of himself he did not know. Was he an actor in it, or merely a spectator? And was it being enacted for or against him? One thing and one only he knew with surpassing clarity, that the war in no way depended on his own volition. Yet in all that touched on the war, everyone, all the time, kept invoking him and his will. The world, in Polanyi's view, had sleepwalked to war. Later generations, he said, would hardly believe that so great a calamity could have taken the civilized world entirely by surprise. That millions had died or been displaced for no good reason had, for him, the force of a revelation. But he sensed that this revelation would be strenuously resisted. One common will, one common determination is at work, hidden and secret, in this moribund world. In all its governments and all its oppositions, in its science and its religion, in its culture and its civilization. One guilty hope is rife in the minds of its ruling spirits. And it is that in spite of everything, they will prevail. They will forget everything. They will silence everyone. They will rend the telltale page from the book of history and continue as the rulers of the world, without faith, without conviction. Karl Polanyi was determined not to be silenced, not to let the telltale page be torn away. It was the calling of his generation, he believed, to take responsibility for the war. This did not mean accepting blame so much as recognizing the volcanic power that had been so thoughtlessly stirred up. It meant looking society in the eye and beginning to ask, how could one become responsible for what had obviously exceeded everyone's will? And it was by its willingness to face up to this task that he felt his generation would be judged. A generation is born into history when it becomes aware of its calling, and its worth will depend on the degree to which it actually has fulfilled that calling. Should it not recognize the task uniquely set out for it, should it not take that task upon itself, it will meet the fate of the wicked and slothful servant who buried his talent in the earth. Such generations are kept on record in the civic registers only and in the tax rolls. 
They have no home save among the calendar years. History knows them not. Such generations never came to life, for they failed to recognize the task that would have been their life. Karl Polanyi, in the years to come, would rigorously hold himself to the task to which he believed his generation was called. In the essay from which I've been quoting, he vows to bear eternal witness to the shame of the present times. For it is in facing and investigating this shame, he says, that the way is to be found. The prophetic note is sometimes more muted in his later scholarship, but it is never entirely absent. The war had shown the horrors an unconscious society could produce. The question now was, how could society be made transparent enough to allow conscious and responsible action by its citizens? Klaus Thomasberger is a professor at the University of Applied Sciences in Berlin and one of the editors of the three published volumes of Karl Polanyi's writings in German. He feels a very strong sense of responsibility of his whole generation for what was going on during the war or for the war itself. And for the rest of his life, he always has in mind the problem that there are social realities which we produce with our acting, but we are not able to control them, we are not able to oversee the consequences of our actions, and because of this we are not able to act really responsible. And the most important example for him here, in his later work at least, is the whole market system. The self-regulating market, it's based only on human action, nothing else. But nobody is able to control that process. Nobody is able to take responsibility for falling prices, for unemployment, for a lot of consequences which this system produces. So freedom means for him that you are able to act out of your own responsibility. Man wishes to realize his responsibilities. He wishes to know what difference his acts will make to other people. He wishes to be able to lead a personal life, the harm of which is as small as possible. Every form of socialism is based on the hope of mankind to attain to a form of social being in which people could normally, in their everyday existence, actualize their responsibilities to their fellows because they would know how their commissions and omissions affect them, and they would be able to act accordingly. Life in society is not free. We influence, burden, harm, and disturb the lives of our fellows, whether we will it or not. We must bide by the truth that we humans are condemned to live upon the freedom of our fellows, that we are condemned to live upon the work and toil, upon the health and life of others. Karl Polanyi wrote these words in a letter to a friend in 1929. They sum up the view of socialism that he developed while living in Vienna in the years after the war. And that's where I'll take up his story 
in the next program in this series. On Ideas, you've listened to part one of Markets and Society, The Life and Thought of Karl Polanyi. It was written and presented by David Cayley. The words of Karl Polanyi were read by Care Wells. Our series continues next week at this time. For those who may have been wondering, Karl Polanyi is related to Canada's Nobel laureate, John Polanyi. He's his uncle. John Polanyi being the son of Michael Polanyi, Carl Polanyi's younger brother, and a celebrated scientist and philosopher in his own right. Our thanks to the Polanyi Institute at Concordia University in Montreal, and to its principals, Anna Gomez, Margie Mandel, and Kari Polanyi-Levitt for their help in the preparation of these programs. Technical Direction, Dave Field. Editorial Consultant, Richard Handler. Associate Producer, Liz Nage. Archival Research, Ken Pewley and Norbert Boyley. You can order a printed transcript of this five-hour series for $25, or five audio cassettes or CDs for $40, taxes and shipping included. To order, please call 416-205-7367. You can also send a check or credit card information to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Our order phone once again is 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. News follows, then the arts tonight, and between the covers. (laughs) 